0: The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. UK rents up more than a quarter since 2020. MPs still deliberating over Parliament's restoration. Stratford Sphere given one last chance by Michael Gove. And how the richest 1% account for more carbon emissions than the poorest 66%. My name is Berlin Vulture, I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to the brief from Open City. My guest this week is Rowan Moore. Rowan is the architecture critic of The Observer and author of several books, including Property, The Myth That Built The World. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. The average rent in the UK is up by more than a quarter compared to pre-pandemic levels, with bidding wars erupting between desperate prospective tenants helping to ramp up the prices even further. This is the latest revelation in the deepening housing crisis, which continues to divide the UK, spelling increased hardship for those who rent, but on the other hand, uh, ever more money for some landlords. The Guardian reported on data from the high-end lettings agent Savills, which indicated that typical private rent at the end of 2023 will be 9.5% higher than December last year, and is projected to rise by another 6% in 2024, before finally reaching what is called "quote an affordability ceiling. Since March 2020, when the UK's first Covid lockdown began, rents have increased by 26%, according to the Savills' research. This dramatic hike in rental prices over the past three years has been largely attributed to the demand for tenancies increasingly outstripping the supply of available rental properties. It's also been linked to the 14 consecutive interest rate rises, which have affected many landlords who hold buy-to-let mortgages, even forcing some to leave the market altogether. Together, The critical shortage of rental properties has led to letting agents receiving about 20 requests for each available property in 2023. That's compared to just six before the pandemic. Uh, This dire situation has enabled some landlords to demand almost an entire year's rent up front and has provoked bidding wars among prospective tenants, some of whom are forced to offer hundreds of pounds above the advertised monthly rent. According to the charity Shelter, more than half a million renters missed out on renting a property in the past five years due to someone else offering the landlord even more money. This deepening crisis has led to enormous hardship for millions uh, and it's also prompted an outpouring of bold and previously unthought of ideas to solve the housing crisis. Uh, Last month on this show, we covered the holes to homes vision by the architect's RCKA. That would see an 18-hole council-owned golf course transformed into mid-density housing for 2,000 people, still leaving nine holes to the golfers. Speaking about these plans, in an opinion piece in The Guardian this week, Open City Chief Executive Finn Harper wrote, quote, "'Such radical plans wouldn't just help tackle our chronic lack of housing, but also let the sport shed its elitist tag.'" Okay, so Rowan, you're an architecture critic. You've made a career out of architecture itself. And in your latest book, you've turned to the housing crisis, the topic of our times. Okay, it's called Property, the Myth uh, That Built the World. And it examines how property and private ownership have shaped the modern fabric of reality. So, why are we so obsessed with this idea of home ownership? And where did this fixation start?
1: Owning your own home has always been a dream. Most people would probably want that given the choice. But it certainly has become more and more of an obsession since the 1980s, since Margaret Thatcher introduced what she called the property-owning democracy, which was an old idea that went back at least to the 1920s, but she kind of revived it and gave it a particular spin. I mean, I should say that in Britain, in the early 20th century, about a sixth of households were own occupier, everyone else rented. So this idea that home ownership is fundamentally British, as British as fish and chips or whatever, is a little bit exaggerated. That's a useful thing to remember. But, yeah, people want to own homes if they possibly can. So Margaret Thatcher said, we want more people to own homes. That will make them happier and richer and freer. So she started selling council houses. She deregulated the financial market so that it was easier to get a mortgage, It was a successful policy in that a lot of people became homeowners who weren't previously, and it was electorally absolutely brilliant because owners, homeowners are, in general, more likely to vote Conservative than tenants, especially council tenants. So it was a phenomenally successful policy, but the really toxic part of it was that the idea of ownership, for no fundamental reason, became linked to house price inflation. So people didn't just start buying properties, but the prices of properties started going up. And whereas Margaret Thatcher prided herself on defeating inflation in every single other area of economic life, house price inflation was something to be celebrated. Until quite recently, you have the front page of of newspapers going, yay, house prices have gone up again. So it did create this kind of cultural economic environment where has prices just kept going up and up and up? And there's other factors as well we can talk about.
0: Well, before we delve into the sort of consequences of yeah. all this, I think it's interesting to look, obviously you, you talk about Thatcher, but since then we've had we had a new Labour government, we've had Conservative governments, we've gone through a financial crisis, we've gone through various upheavals. Um How has this played out over the most recent decade, this property-owning democracy? Because we hear repeatedly from politicians... Ever since uh, the crash happened, pretty much they want to fix this housing crisis. Mm. But then we're also hearing that the housing crisis seems to get worse every year. Yes, and like you say, we also occasionally get reports from estate agents saying that property prices are up, and you know, yeah. in a celebratory tone for certain people. Um, so, what's what's happened exactly? Why is this so enduring? What is the sort of mechanism that's advanced it uh, so much so that um, even whatever happens in a future election, we it seems like there's no way out.
1: House price inflation continued. Partly because it it made owners feel good. Importantly also because it helped keep the economy turning over. So if people feel richer because their houses are worth more, they're more likely to spend money, borrow money maybe, to spend money against their equity. That generates economic activity, tax revenue, etc. And there's also been a kind of fear of house prices actually going down. So... Since the 2008 crash, we've seen measures taken to keep prices high. So a few years after 2008, the coalition government, as it then was, had had the idea of help to buy, which was basically lend first-time buyers money to help them buy homes, ostensibly something that would help first-time buyers, and it probably did some. But the more significant effect was to increase house prices because if people have more buying power, then the sellers can simply raise the prices. That's the way the economy works. If you don't, of course, do anything with supply. And then again, during Covid, one of the big measures to boost the economy that Rishi Sunak came up with was a stamp duty holiday. Again, it seems to benefit the people who are sort of at the bottom of the pile when it comes to ownership but again ultimately the effect is to increase prices which it did so yeah it's seen as you know as as good believers in the free market they should believe in adjustments to the market if the market is overpriced and then it falls they should be happy with that but they're not they kind of prop it up
0: now obviously we talked about this concept of the property owning democracy to many on a superficial level this might sound like a perfectly reasonable idea if i miraculously won the lottery maybe i you know would buy my castle in london um where did it all go wrong in the actual reality and practice of it and how have we ended up living in a society now where those without property suffer so extremely like it, it and, and 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 effectively there is no housing policy for those people no
1: i think it's been like slowly ratcheting up for for decades and decades and decades. I wrote an article in the Evening Standard in the late 90s saying there's a real problem to do with the fact that people who are essential to the well-being of London are finding it more and more difficult to afford homes here. You know, and that was was already true 20-something years ago. So it's been a slow
0: progression, I would say, do you think you could have written this book in the past or is it only now that right. this will go down well enough with polite property-owning society, that they, they've got to the point where they will con- concede? I mean, I could have written it
1: some time ago, but it probably would have been different. And, yeah, I think I think there's a greater appetite for it, a greater perception that, that something quite radical has to happen. And I think my own journey has been more and more seeing that some quite significant and radical public interventions are necessary. So we're talking about supply. There's clearly a problem of supply. Not enough homes are built. However, that does not mean you simply do what the free market philosophy would say, which is you increase the supply. So you've now got to a point where sort of right-wing think tanks are saying build more homes, then laws of supply and demand come in and everyone can afford them. That is never, ever, ever going to happen. It's not going to happen because we're not going to have a a world without planning. We're not going to have a country without planning. Because people really like planning in the end, when it affects them. You know, if it stops, you know, a 24-hour club opening next door, or an abattoir, or a nuclear power station, or, you know, they want planning to stop those things happening. You know, basically, planning is, is, is a good idea done right. So you're always going to have a kind of restriction that comes from planning controls and the other thing is that as, as a number of people have, have pointed out uh, there's this concept called absorption that developers and house builders pay a great deal of attention to which is simply you don't flood your own market so you don't build so many homes at once that the price comes down because then you just stop building them
0: well it's like we're going through a downturn house builders are predicting to build less there's never been a better time to buy some shares in a house builder because they're going to rock it like um, this is exactly yeah. what happened in 2008 a housing crisis is an extremely lucrative field yes for certain enterprises yeah which is so bizarre and then you'd politicians stand up and say we need to get the industry on its feet well the industry's doing pretty well. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, they, they was a bit rocky for them in, in, I don't know, the sort of early teens. But yes, they, they do seem to get given a very soft landing when it's sort of times of trouble. So, OK, we have the Green Belt. We have our planning system, which is quite restrictive. Those both go back to the post-war Labour government of Clement Attlee. Um, Town and Country Planning Act. Green belts existed before that, but massively expanded them, extended them. But that was one half of a programme that was also a huge amount of council house building and also building new towns, so state-directed development. And those two things were complementary, and what's happened is the state-led development half of that has massively diminished, whereas the controlling aspect has increased And I think we need to look at the 1945 Labour government and look again at what they did and what they got right. Famously, quite a lot of things didn't work very well, but they did create a huge amount of affordable housing. Um, Because also, when we talk about housing shortage, it's not just the the sheer numbers of homes, it's it's what kind of homes, how affordable are they, what are the 10 years... If it's all private houses with gardens, well, that's not going to solve anything.
0: I mean, it's just do a little compare and contrast on that. So, nineteen forty-five post-war era compared to now. So, like back then, country was very, very poor, poorer than it is now. So the country's richer. But, yeah, because, you know, there's more money to spend. Um, Back then, we had an enormous housing crisis. Right now, we've got an enormous housing crisis. Okay. Back then, maybe we had leadership. Maybe that's a sort of crucial factor. Whereas now, okay, we might have some leadership. But back then, maybe property wasn't even really worth as much. Whereas now, people, society has so much cash or equity, whatever, tied up in the value of their home. Is this the case that the value of our homes is sort of holding us back? That the real reason people object to stuff is because they're worried about the value, their home <laughs> price collapsing. Well, that
1: certainly increases the power of nimbyism, if you like. So, yeah, if somebody's got a sort of £2 million house in Kent, they're all the more motivated to oppose a new housing development nearby. And
0: is that rational or irrational? Will it, will, uh, surely the well, value of, of their home would go a up. A bit
1: of both. Yeah, it can certainly be true that if you've got a house with a view of sort of meadows and forests or whatever and somebody puts a housing estate in front of it Mm -hmm. especially, unfortunately if that housing estate is for low income people, the value of their house will go down. On the other hand, people in suburban and rural communities are always complaining about pubs closing and schools closing and post office closing and gosh, maybe that's something to do with the number of people, especially younger people who can afford to live there
0: yeah, and, like, the distance to the hospital and how long it will take an ambulance to come and collect them yeah, if they had a full... public transport, buses and all the rest of it.
1: So, I mean, is you, this... you, there's, there's so much wealth in land that it should be enough to benefit everyone. So, the way the British new towns were built was the government set up development corporations. They bought the land, they then invested in their infrastructure, they gave themselves planning permission for housing and all the other things that were needed for a new town... And then as a result of those actions, the value of the land went up, which helped to finance continued improvements. So according to some estimates, the whole new town programme ended up costing the Treasury nothing, or not very much. That seems like a very good basis to proceed, and in a way that the possibilities are much greater now because the values are so much greater. So if you convert a field or part of a golf course from its current use, to housing, and its value can go up 15, 20 or more times, that should create enough wealth to benefit the landowner to a reasonable degree, build new houses, and also create amenities for the people who already live there. So that makes their life better, so that they it's not all a negative experience for them to have new housing. The consultancy, Urbed, won the Wolfson Prize, nine, ten years ago, with their their proposal for building a kind of urban extensions along those lines, financed in that way, which also goes back to Ebenezer Howard and the Garden City. And it's basically a good idea, but it needs leadership and political will that we don't really see at the moment.
0: And sort of adjacent to that, we've got Russell Curtis, RCKA architect, with his golf course proposal. We covered it a few times on the show before, basically just pointing out a lot of publicly owned golf land in the the London uh, green belt. Uh, And even we've seen uh, Keir Starmer at Labour Party conference talking about building on low quality land within the green belt, something that that he's labelling grey belt. What do you make of these proposals in particular, which are sort of bubbling up? You know, Finn Harper's put a piece yeah. in the the Guardian opinion piece about it. This is quite an affront to the post-war planning orthodoxy. Is Are we going down the wrong path with this, or is this pretty smart?
1: Uh, well, it's kind of similar in a way. Well, it's an affront, I guess, in that the post-war planning created the Green Belt, but it also mm. created ways of building mm. in green fields and, and creating planned development, as I was saying, which... um is what we need. What we do not want to do is just release parcels of land to the volume house builders to do their usual stuff. That's absolutely wrong. Um, So, yeah, I thought Finn's piece was great. It's good. Keir Starmer's talking about the green belt. I have a feeling there's going to be very big arguments about what is really a grey belt. I mean, I would actually not be completely against sometimes building on green green belt so the boundaries of the Greenbelt were drawn up in the sort of 1940s and then progressively sort of reinforced in the 50s and 60s. Uh, so you know, the, the London green belt is three times the area of London. So the idea that you can't build on a very small amount of that for the benefit of London and the South East as a whole, and indeed the country as a whole, is bonkers to me. Why we should... These slightly random boundaries that were drawn up a very long time ago in a completely different situation... Why those should be absolutely sacrosanct, I do not know. And and you also have other protections. You have areas of outstanding natural beauty. You have sites of special scientific interest. So, you know, the really good stuff is still protected. I mean, something to be said about new towns and Greenbelt and all of that is that's going to be really slow. It's not going to take effect quickly. And it's also the issue of there's the issue of embodied energy. So we should also be looking very creatively at how to reuse existing buildings. Um, most obviously office buildings, and that's hard to do. But the same kind of can-do attitude that went into the post-war Newtowns, if that went into reuse of existing buildings, we might get somewhere.
0: MPs have been presented with three options over the long overdue restoration of the Palace of Westminster. Plans will be set out before Parliament next year. This has all been reported by the AJ. MPs were due to debate on two options next year for restoring the Grade 1 listed waterfront complex, which is well known to be very much decaying. And a vote had been earmarked for the end of 23, but it was scrapped. A vote is now expected to be held in 2025 once all the costs are presented in full. So the original two options included either a full decant of the palace of westminster to allow restoration work to take place or a lengthier and more expensive option of a continued presence on the estate while that work's carried out um, there's now a third option um, which is of what's been called enhanced maintenance um, and that will be presented alongside the original two choices So details on what a temporary House of Commons could look like will also be outlined to MPs. And it's understood that the architect's BDP uh, could still be working on that project. The practice had worked on a £500 million project called the Northern Estate Scheme. Um, It was paused in 2020 following a strategic review of plans to refurbish Parliament. Uh, that project would see upgrades to several Grade 1, Grade 2 and Grade 2 star-listed buildings in the Whitehall area uh, that currently all provide office space uh, for the House of Commons. Um, it is unclear if this scheme will be revived in its original form and unclear whether or not an AHMM-designed temporary House of Commons chamber in Richmond House uh, on the Northern Estate, that's the former Department of Health. Um, it's unclear Any of that, whether or not any of that will feature in the latest proposals, so we have to keep our eyes out for that. MPs and Lords originally voted in 2018 to fully vacate Parliament before a review was undertaken in 2020. That assessment found that fully decanting the building would cost between £7 and £13 billion, and the repairs would take between 19 and 28 years. And obviously there's been a lot of inflation since then. Meanwhile, plans by the architects Gensler to transform London's former City Hall building, down the river, into a mixed-use scheme, these plans have been teased out into the world with the release of a single image ahead of a public exhibition next month. The team, which also includes the landscape architect LDA Design, aims to, quote, sensitively refurbish and revitalise the vacant Foster and Partners design building, which is next to Tower Bridge on the south bank of the Thames, sometimes called the Space Helmet very recognisable sort of Millennium building. There's other names too, but yes. There's other names too. Uh, This landmark building was home to the Greater London Authority until December 21 uh, when it relocated over to Royal Victoria Dock next to where we're recording this show. Okay, so Rome, what do you make of these three options that the MPs have been given for the Palace of Westminster? We don't obviously have a huge amount of detail about each option, nor do we have the cost, but it's going to be a lot, whatever it is. Um, What kind of things should MPs be taking into consideration when they make decisions on this? Are MPs even the right people to be
1: be making this decision at all? I wrote about the Palace of Westminster last year and it is an absolutely fantastical, vast problem because you have... It's an absolutely enormous, complicated, intricate building that is also Grade 1 listed down to the last detail. There's no end of Pugin wallpaper and, you know, every bit of panelling and door handle and hinge in caustic tiles is Grade 1 listed... It then has a really, really complicated infrastructure of kind of pipes and wires, because basically whenever a new piece of technology that's come in, like central heating and electricity and CCTV and Wi-Fi, they've just bunged a whole lot more pipes and wires into the voids created by Pugin and Barry when they built this building.
0: Sounds pretty steampunk.
1: It is completely steampunk. I mean, I did go down into the basement, which is just full of the most amazing contraptions that are literally emitting steam and leaking water and sometimes leaking sewage, and it's it's scary because because Barry also created this kind of ventilation system which is which is almost the perfect way to, to spread a fire. So you know, people have said it could be Britain's Notre Dame.
0: Yeah, we had and, the Battersea Art Centre, we had the MAC building yeah. burnt down twice. These things happen. And it's
1: not impossible. And then the problem you have is that no government ever wants to be the government that says, right, we're going to spend all this money renovating this building. So they keep kicking the can down the road. So the, the complexity of the infrastructure and the, and the heritage intersect with each other. So if you want to put a new wire in... You have to take off all the Pugin wallpaper and panelling and get people from the V&A to record it. Put in your wires, which then have to go around all the existing wires and you need specially formed conduits and all of that. And then you have to put all the panelling and the wallpaper and whatever back on. So as you can imagine, that's a phenomenally expensive undertaking, over a million square foot.
0: Yeah, that it costs them tens of millions of pounds just to keep it in the state where it's continuing to fall apart every year.
1: They did create a reasonably good structure for sorting it out, where there was a kind of arm's-length organisation that had some distance from MPs. Same sort of model as delivered the 2012 Olympics. That was quite a sensible way of doing it because it took MPs out of the sort of immediate decision-making. But then that uh, organisation, which was called the Sponsor Body said things that ministers didn't want to hear. Like what? Like that it was going to be so expensive, Mm. but also everyone had to move out, which I'll say a bit more about in a minute. So then that was just ceremoniously wound down, I think about 18 months ago. So the other issue is the decant, because you can keep MPs and lords in the building and do all the repair works around them, or you can move them out to temporary premises somewhere else. The option of keeping them there is much more expensive but they really really don't want to move out because a major perk of being an mp or a lord is you you're in this historic building where kind of Winston Churchill and William Gladstone and Clement Attlee or whoever your heroes are you know have walked the corridors and you will have this amazing architecture that makes you feel special and important it's
0: all magical until a piece of rock falls off and uh, yeah. you know. until it all goes up in a puff of
1: smoke yeah i would say members of parliament and lords should just take it on the chin They are the generation that has to accept this fairly small element of self-sacrifice for the sake of this historic building and for the sake of future generations. So I have very little sympathy with, with that argument that you should spend lots more money just so they can stay in those spaces.
0: So down the river, another Thameside landmark, the old GLA building, City Hall. Um, New proposals have been revealed to renovate it. Uh, The idea is to retain much of the existing structure while also introducing new office space and some publicly accessible uses like cafes, shops, restaurants on the ground floor. The building was actually refused listing by Historic England back in 2020, who said... uh, 2022, sorry, who said it did not rank among the very best examples of the work of Foster and Partners in this period when it was constructed. Rowan, you've seen uh, the visuals... Uh, of the city hall with like green stuff all over it uh what do you make of it
1: well i kind of witnessed the creation of this building when i was architecture critic of the evening standard 20 something years ago and what happened is the government had their fingers burnt by the scottish parliament
0: which was massively over budget so it was meant to be 40 million ended up being 450 million whatever or something. it was
1: so then they wanted a new mayor of london and a greater london authority and they said okay well let's be really efficient about this so they just went to a state agents and said, what, what kind of office building have you got of about the right size? So all the kind of office buildings that were in the process of going through planning were sort of looked at. And then people started saying, well, hang on a minute, maybe it should be a bit more special than that, if this is the centre of London's democracy. So then belatedly, the sort of bidders, um, the people trying to get the government to, to buy the space off them, so oh, well, we better sex up our proposals a bit. So the site of City Hall was originally a, a very bland Norman Foster office block, but the developers, the people who own the site, went, oh, no, if we're going to win this bidding process and we do want to have the mayor's headquarters here, you know, we've got, we've got to sex it up a bit. So Foster's yeah. made it into this blob which are, I believe it started with a sketch by Norman Foster for a sphere hanging over the Thames. Whoa. So it was like the London Eye, but in three dimensions. Yeah. And that unsurprisingly proved impractical. But So it kind of got moved inland. inland. Um, it was going to have a piece of water around it, like it dragged a bit of the Thames. Then it ended up looking like a castle with a moat, so that was considered sort of not good iconography. Then they got the idea of the big spiral ramp that comes from the Reichstag in Berlin where the people of the city can go up a ramp and see their city and also look down on their elected representatives in a kind of symbolic gesture or something. So they stuffed this ramp in the middle, but it was a really compromised building because the ramp never worked because, of course, there are security considerations which meant it never worked. Um, So it's never been this kind of grand public promenade except, thanks to open City, sometimes people can go up it. And it's just a weird sort of compromise between an ordinary office building and and a sort of quote unquote iconic structure so i've never loved it i agree with the assessment that it's not one of foster's greatest buildings but it is part of london history so i'm cautiously welcome gensler's proposals yeah i mean the devil will be in the detail you know so far like you say we've just seen one drawing but um the principle is fine yeah
0: Community Secretary Michael Gove has officially called in Populous' proposed 21,500 capacity sphere venue in East London just two weeks after the venue plans were blocked by the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. We covered the Mayor's decision on our last show with Catherine Croft um, but this week the AJ reported that the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities has now stepped in. Uh, it's told the London Legacy Development Corporation to hold off implementing the Mayor's decision to veto the planning permission which the corporation itself granted back in March 22. Now Gove's department has demanded a public inquiry into the controversial proposal for the sphere-shaped entertainment <laughs> venue in Stratford. Um, the move comes even though the scheme's backer, Madison Square Garden, in a statement, appeared to have given up on its plans to build the project, at least in London, sort of saying, yeah, there are other cities who might want this. Uh, elsewhere in the capital, Michael Gove has gone back on plans to halt the demolition of a valued not-for-profit music and art space in Waterloo. The guys in St Thomas' Foundation, that's a health fund with a £1 billion asset which isn't affi- affiliated with the NHS Trust... But owns the land, uh, which is the hospital across the road, um, they plan to demolish what's called Old Paradise Yard, uh, which currently houses the independent music venue Eclectic, um, which pioneers like all kinds of electric sounds you wouldn't hear anywhere else. And it's very cool, according to people who've been there. They're going to effectively go ahead and demolish that, along with various other arts and community spaces in favour of a new office development in the Waterloo area. The proposal includes five tower blocks and would constitute the largest single office development ever built in the borough of Lambeth. Um, Also, uh, in August, Gove initially had supported the campaign to save that site um, and issued an Article 31 directive, which effectively prevented Lambeth Council from proceeding with the plan until a full investigation had taken place. Um, However, last week, Eclectic on their Twitter account or X account said that this support from the department has been withdrawn. Meanwhile, yet yeah, another independent music venue in South London is also facing permanent closure. Uh, in this instance, it's due to a dispute with the landlord. Um, this is the grassroots matchstick pie house in Deptford, uh, which describes itself as an anti capitalist venue. It's launched a campaign to raise £35,000 by the end of the month to secure its future. Okay, so firstly, Rowan, as an architecture critic, what do you make of the MSG sphere? Um, it's gained a lot of attention online and in the media. Um, is this a worthy development, in your opinion? Uh, would you be On down there and writing rave reviews of it if it ever got Uh, well. I
1: think worth is the right word for it. Um, (laughs) personally, I would probably detest it. I mean, I haven't seen the one in Las Vegas, you know. I'm I'm I also recognize I'm not the target audience, so I would have absolutely nothing against something like that coming to London. And if they can make it work, if they can attract people, if they can generate employment, why not? I mean, the the history of a very important part of the history of architecture, which is under-described in the history books, is that an awful lot of the history of architecture is about trying to achieve greater and greater and greater impact and sensation. Gothic cathedrals, Baroque churches, whatever, they're all trying to do the same thing. Light colour, figurative imagery, scale, etc. They're trying to overwhelm you. So...
0: So this is in that tradition? It is
1: kind of in that tradition. I'm not saying it's exactly like a Gothic cathedral, but it's definitely... You know, part of an urge to make a spectacular experience. I think the problem with this specific proposal was to do with the fact that it was near where people lived, so people were going to have light from it blasting into their homes at all times. So I think that's a good reason for not doing it in that spot, and you have to ask how they went so far down the road.
0: Certainly interesting how it's been covered in the media and it's sort of bounced back between politicians and Michael Gove, um, Sadiq Khan and then Michael Gove waving, wading in. Um, we've talked about Gove many times on the show as sort of, Come along into various stories like the tulip and other things. Here we're going to look at some um, some other aspects beyond the the mega development uh, and look at the the smaller venues uh, which are currently at threat. Um, what do you think of this? The fact that um, they're not being saved uh, potentially from redevelopment that they're these these much treasured spaces. In I the mean, city. I have
1: to say I don't know much about those particular spaces in detail, but the principle that you would welcome gigantic multinational mega entertainment corporations and not also do quite modest things to support grassroots bottom up culture does seem wrong. Comes back to property prices, but you know, because land is so valuable, there's always pressure on on these kind of venues. And I think it would, you know, a bit of support from the planning system. Uh, is is a good thing. I mean, we used to have these things called. Well, we still have these things called community assets that came in. I think under the coalition government, where something can be protected because it's good for the community, but it doesn't seem to be very effective at protecting places like this.
0: The richest 1% are responsible for more carbon emissions than the poorest 66% of global population, according to a joint investigation by The Guardian and Oxfam published this week. There are 77 million people which constitute the top 1%. That's those who earn more than £112,500 a year. Um, They account for 16% of all carbon emissions in 2019. Uh, The authors of the study estimated this was enough to cause more than 1 million excess deaths due to heat. The investigation, coined the Great Carbon Divide, highlights the disproportionate impact of super-rich individuals, uh, which have become known as the, quote, polluter elite. The report found that marginalised ethnic communities, people living in poverty, migrants and women and girls, are all suffering disproportionately as a result of carbon emissions, as they are more likely to be economically vulnerable and are at higher physical risk of floods, heatwaves, droughts and forest fires. Staggeringly, the data indicates it would take someone in the bottom 99% of the world population 1,500 years to produce as much carbon as the richest billionaires do in a single year further analysis by the carbon brief has found that the uk is responsible for nearly double the amount of global heating as previously acknowledged when you consider britain's vast colonial legacy Uh, so the nation's domestic emissions account for three percent of global emissions since 1850 however when you take into account the countries once under british rule the figures rise to more than five percent this is a rise largely attributed to the destruction of forests in colonized countries these findings elevate the UK from the 8th to the 4th position among nations with the highest historical emissions, just behind the US, China and Russia. So Rowan, uh, this research, which is published just as the COP28 uh, conference is getting underway in the UAE, is a pretty damning indictment of the consumerism enjoyed by the richest in society, uh, and the direct impact this has on the less fortunate. Um, be interested to hear your take on that, <laughs> but, but also particularly uh, the role that architecture plays in all of this as well. Um, you know, obviously we see a lot of developments going up of, like, super towers for, like, a whole floor of a skyscraper for one person, and that tower's empty a lot of the, the year. We also see, you know, big mega mansions built in the countryside with, like, beautiful space-age architecture as well, um, which pretty much that sort of 1% type lifestyles. Um, what do what responsibility do architects have in this, uh, this scenario? Uh,
1: okay, and we're dealing with kind of vast societal, cultural, political economic issues, yeah. architects have a bit of a tendency to overrate their importance in all of this and their capacity to affect change. But I think the most useful thing architects can do is use their ingenuity and creativity to show how you can do things differently. So I next Sunday, I've got an interview with Lacaton Vassal coming out who have demonstrated how you can reuse buildings without knocking them down while improving their environmental performance while improving their the physical experience hugely for the people who live there you know they didn't they didn't start off really doing that from a kind of massive sustainability campaigning point of view they did it for a number of reasons but it does show something very important which is how you can reuse buildings with a much less, much smaller carbon footprint, much less energy consumption than knocking them down and rebuilding. And it's not just a technical issue, it's an architectural spatial issue. So I was talking earlier about converting office buildings to housing. And you look at the HSBC tower in Canary Wharf, which is 1.7 million square feet, I think.
0: And I think they're, va- they're vacating it to go to the West End. HSBC or something.
1: are vacating it. So this is a 20 something year old building. There was meant to be the perfect, the platonic ideal of the commercial office block when it was built, and now office users don't want to be there. So it's about 1.7 million square feet, which could maybe house, in theory, 2,500 people or something. But people look at it and go, oh, no, deep floor plates, um, windows you can't open, all these other, no services for residents, not the kind of facilities residents want. We can't do that. But you can do it with some creativity. So I asked Lacaton Vassal how they would notionally approach a project like that. And they said, well, if you're not obsessed with getting using every last square foot in the most efficient way, if you build a bit of generosity into it, you can do it. So, OK, so, so, so deep. So you're going to have a single aspect flat. Some of it's going to be a long way from a window. That's suboptimal. But if people have got a bit of a bigger flat with a higher ceiling and have a bit more generosity of space, and maybe you give them... You sort of step back from the outer skin so they have an outdoor space. You know, maybe you actually create a, a good place where people would want to live. That's the sort of thinking that architects can
0: bring. Fantastic. OK, so uh, we're on to the culture section. Um... Oh, my God,
1: I have not thought about this at all. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'd I'd love to see the Philip Guston show at Tate Modern, uh, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I think he's a fantastic artist. That was a sort of tragic... Sort of confused situation that arose with the show, such actually it wasn 't shown previously to do with the fact that he does these kind of hooded figures who look like ku Klu klux klan It's terrifying Klansmen. but that 's the point he 's not he 's not saying clansmen are good he 's saying quite the opposite, um, but the, it was sort of not very sensitively handled i think um, by the the people in charge so anyway, very glad that show's on uh, definitely i 'm going to come and go and see it um, Otherwise, I should just get a life, you know. And
0: uh, Well, there's something big happening this week. It's um, Rowan Moore, How to Fix a Housing Crisis. Yes. This is a Barbican Architecture on Stage event uh, with the Architecture Foundation, 7pm on Thursday, the 7th of December. Are you looking forward to being on the stage? I
1: am. I am. I, it's quite daunting, but uh, yes.
0: You'll be talking about similar similar things in the, the book. The kind of
1: things I've been talking about today and, and that are in the book, yes. Okay. Um,
0: Fantastic. And the fine, is, yeah.
1: Fantastic Christmas present for everyone who wants to know about uh, property culture.
0: Yeah, I fully endorse that statement. And um, also anyone on the Christmas shopping uh, front can know that um, you have until the 12th of December to place your orders on the Christmas uh, shop at Open City um, if you want delivery before uh, Christmas. Rowan, thank you for being on this week's show. It's a real honour to feature you on The Brief by Open City. Um, where should listeners go to stay up to speed on your writing? Uh, are there socials or a website? Obviously, we know there's a book. Uh,
1: well, I write for The Observer every week, which appears on the guardian.com website and in print. And I'm on Twitter. My name is Rowan Moore.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for being on the show. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. you have been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architects Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early, ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Chadder, and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable.